O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, turn our hearts and minds toward you as we open your word today. Strengthen our weak faith. Grow us in grace and deepen our trust so that we may rest in Jesus more. We ask this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. The modern world is in the wilderness, and everyone seems to be dying of thirst. But so many people are confident that we've found the true waters of life. Individualism, scientism, politics, psychology, even religion all promise to be silver bullets. They all promise to be water for us in the wilderness. They offer power, belonging, meaning, and stability in our cultural moment. Now, Christianity is not necessarily against any of those things I mentioned, depending on how you think about them or how you define them. I'm just trying to show you that we all put hope in something. And the biggest mistake we make is putting our hope in something that's non-ultimate. In other words, we all drink water from somewhere in the wilderness, but Christianity is the only source that gives you water that really quenches, because it's in the wilderness that God opens to us the waters of life. But we don't always drink. We're what the Bible calls hard-hearted and stiff-necked people. The Bible says the problem is not our cultural moment. It's not even the wilderness. No, the problem is us. The problem is our heart's desires are disordered. And although we live in the most prosperous and one of the safest countries in the world as modern Western people, we somehow are still miserable. And it's because we are parched and our hearts are hardened to the thing that we need most. Friends, Psalm 95 is a psalm for those who are in the wilderness. It shows us a few things. I want to go through this three times. Um, The first time, I'm going to show you what the psalm says. Second, I'm going to show you what the psalm is saying. And third, I'm going to show you what it means, and I'll give you a quick application at the end. So let's dive in. What Psalm 95 says first. Now, many of the psalms, you may know, commemorate and remind Israel of particular moments in their history. Their songs and prayers that reflect the history of Israel and the human condition. 
Psalm 95 is often attributed to be a psalm commemorating Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. It's that time between when they left Egypt and they're liberated from slavery until the second generation goes and enters into the land of Canaan that we see in the book of Joshua. Now scholars attribute this psalm to a feast in the life of Israel called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a time where Israel would recreate their time in the wilderness and they'd go and they'd live in tents again remembering the purpose of the tabernacle, the the tent that God instructed Israel to make where he would come and he would dwell amongst his people at the center of Israel's encampment as they wandered through the Sinai wilderness. It was a time when Israel commemorated their time in the wilderness and looked to their future hope when God would dwell amongst his people more fully. And the first half of the psalm is really it's a call to worship. It's an invitation to come and to worship God. In fact, historically, the Christian church has used Psalm 95 as part of its liturgy for morning prayer. Come and worship God today. It's an invitation to come and worship him in song, in joyful noises of music and praise and with thanksgiving. It's a psalm you see about worship the ways that we worship, and how we're supposed to worship God by coming into His presence. And it shows us the posture that we ought to have in our worship. Notice verse 2, thanksgiving. And verse 6 is reverence. Notice the psalm is divided into three sections. One and two, call to worship. Three and five shows us why we worship. And then the pattern repeats in verses six, uh, in verse 6 and then uh, and 7. And then verses 7 through 11 is a historical example of how not to worship. You see, Psalm 95 is a guide to proper worship. It says, come and worship the true God. Come and worship the living God with all your heart. But the problem is Israel did not always worship this way. So we have an example of what the Bible calls hardness of heart when Israel did not worship the living God rightly. That's what it says. Now what's it saying? Look at verses 3 and 5. What it's saying there is worship God because he is eternal. He existed before the cosmos even came into existence, into being. In the beginning, before there was time, before there was physics, God was there. Now most of you know this, but some of you don't, so let me just share Um, that when God first appeared to Moses in the book of Exodus, he revealed himself in his name, which is Yahweh, which literally means I am. You see, his name reveals his eternal being. And God is a great God. He's He's eternal and he's the king above all other gods. In other words, he is the true God. And Israel knows this. In fact, when they were enslaved in Egypt... God sent the, the, the ten plagues to demonstrate his superiority over the small g gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Scholars point out that the plagues God sent to Egypt, the flies, the gnats, the hail, they mirrored one of the Egyptian deities and demonstrated Yahweh's power over them. You see, he is the king above all other gods. None compare to him. And he is the creator How did the depths of the earth, how did the heights of the mountains, the sea, the dry land, how did it come into existence? God created them. He brought it all forth, we say ex nihilo, or literally out of nothing. 
He is the ultimate sovereign in the universe because he depends on nothing, but everything depends on him. But he's not only the creator of the universe, which would make him everyone's God and everyone's king generally, but he is specifically Israel's God. Look at verse 7. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. In other words, he is a covenant God. In fact, Yahweh is God's covenant name. You know, there's a name for God that's more general that, that the biblical authors in the Old Testament would use. It's Elohim. Um, when they would, and they would use Elohim to talk about God as the creator God, a more general name. And they would use Yahweh when they talked about God as Israel's covenant God. In fact, both of those names for God are used in this psalm in this way. But Yahweh is specific. It is his covenant name. It means that God binds himself to his people and the people that he calls to himself are bound to him. You see, the Bible teaches that God is not a heartless creator who wants nothing to do with his creation. That's what we call deism. The Bible teaches that God remains involved in his creation by upholding in his hand every single sphere of it. He holds his people and cares for them like a shepherd cares for his sheep. He is bound to them in a covenant. That's a promise built on his eternal love and it cannot be broken. You see, the psalm is saying, worship God because he's the creator and he's the sustainer. But look at the end of verse 7. It's saying, today this God comes and he calls you into his presence to worship him with a heart of thanksgiving and gratitude, with joyful noise and songs and with a reverent heart. Today, if you hear him, come and worship not only with your voice, not only with your body, not only externally, but internally. Come and worship him with your heart. You know, the idea of the heart in the Old Testament, it communicates someone's innermost being. One of the most literal translations for it actually is guts. It's a very Hebrew way of communicating the way the Bible talks about worship, which is with your whole being inside and out, in the penetrating nature of worshiping God. You see, when you worship the true God, the living God, he gets into your heart. He gets into the depths of your guts. And from your guts comes worship. And where your heart is, the Bible says, there the rest of your life will be also. You see, your heart is the single most powerful GPS that you will ever own. It will lead you into life or it will lead you into death. And that's how the Old Testament talks about the heart. But Israel didn't worship God like this. He wasn't first in their hearts. They often go astray in their heart. And therefore, the rest of their life goes astray as well. You see verse 10? His presence doesn't penetrate them. They harden themselves to him in the wilderness. Their bodies, their voices, their traditions seemed to worship him at times. But their hearts were hardened to him. You see, Israel was merely performative at times. You know, you could be in church, you could know all the traditions, the hymns, and be further away from God than anyone would be able to guess because you've hardened your heart to him. You know, you can be in church and you can still be going astray. That's what, the, that's what Luke 15 and the prodigal son is about. How is that possible for Israel, though? 
How is it possible that Israel witnessed God's miracles and they still went astray? You see, Israel is delivered from Egypt in a dramatic fashion. God sends plague after plague to the Egyptians to demonstrate his power over their little g-gods. Then the Israelites finally, when they're released from Egypt, they're on their way uh, to, uh, to the wilderness, to the promised land, and they're running from the Egyptians, and God does what? He parts the Red Sea in two so they may walk through on the dry land safely to the other side, and he vanquishes their enemy. As they wander the desert and they're in need of food, he sends them manna. He sends them bread from heaven every day so that they can eat. But what does Israel do? They never really trust the God who's delivered them from slavery, who's demonstrated his power and his care for them, who's provided for them. You see, they never trust him. They harden themselves to him. And here's the key. Because it was God who brought them to the wilderness. And Israel didn't think that they should have to endure the wilderness. They shouldn't have to suffer. They're physically present with God, but their hearts are not with him. So they grumble. They're not thankful. They harden themselves to the presence of the living God to the point where they'd rather go back to Egypt and be in slavery. They harden themselves even though they've seen his miracles with their very eyes. Even though God is among them and before them, Israel rejects the living God. And it culminates in Exodus chapter 17, which is the historical instance that Psalm 95 is connected to from verses 7 on. So let me tell you about Exodus 17 quickly so we can understand this. And let me say, I cannot preach this to you without being deeply indebted to the theologian Edmund Clowney. So if you're interested in this, uh, I can direct you to his work on this. Let me tell you about Exodus 17. Israel is heading away from Egypt. They're in the wilderness. In the Sinai Desert, dehydration sets in in hours, not days, because of the heat. And God's people, Israel, they become thirsty. So they demand water from their leader, from Moses. But they do more than demand water. They actually bring charges against Moses. And actually, they bring charges against God for bringing them to the desert where they're going to die of thirst. Israel puts God on trial. You see, Meribah and Massa. that's what Moses names the place after the events of Exodus chapter 17. Those are legal and judicial terms. They mean that charges have been submitted in a, le- in a formal legal proceeding. There's a defendant who will stand trial and a prosecutor who will make charges against them. You see what's happening here? Exodus 17 is a courtroom scene. Israel puts God on the stand and demands that justice be done. God is on trial in the wilderness and Israel is prosecuting. What the psalm is saying is that Israel hardened their hearts against the God who created them, who sustained them to the point that they put him on trial for bringing them out of slavery and having to face the wilderness. They accuse the living God of injustice and they demand a verdict. Psalm 95 is saying to modern Israel at the time, 
Remember when you hardened your hearts like at Meribah and Massa when you put God on trial. And remember that first generation of Israelites who did not enter into God's rest, who did not go into the land of Canaan, who did not make it to the promised land except for two of them, not even Moses. But that's a sermon for another time. Now, what does it mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means Israel rejected the God who rescued them. It means they rejected the provisions that he made for them. It means they never bowed and kneeled in their hearts before the creator and king of the universe. Even if they pretended to with their bodies and songs. It means although he was their shepherd, they didn't want to be his sheep. It means they put God on trial in their hearts first by accusing him of injustice and demanding that he be prosecuted It means they rejected the wilderness and believed that they knew better than the creator of the universe. It means they accused God of abandoning them and leaving them to die there. It means that while Israel puts God on the stand, it's really them who should have been on the stand. You see see what's happening here? But something happens in Exodus chapter 17. God takes the stand. God takes the stand in Exodus 17. He stands on a rock before the entire nation of Israel and is accused of injustice by them. And God instructs Moses, the leader, to take his rod, which is a symbol of judicial authority, and to strike the rock on which God was standing. And Moses splits the rock. And from the rock flows water for the people to drink. But what does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. Actually, I'll let the Apostle Paul tell you what it means. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. You see, the rock of salvation in Psalm 95 is Jesus Christ. God is among his people in the wilderness. He provides for them the waters of life. You see, Israel puts God on trial, but Jesus, God's son, absorbs the judgment that Israel deserved. When Israel deserved to take the stand before God and receive a guilty verdict, God gives them acquittal by being struck with the rod of his own justice. The rock Moses struck, you see, is Jesus. Jesus is struck with the rod of God's justice here and ultimately on the cross. He absorbs the judgment that his hard-hearted people deserve. He is split apart when Jesus is struck with the centurion's spear. The Father removes his presence from his own Son so that we can have his presence put into us. He is sent away into the wilderness so that we can come into the city of God. He is the rock of salvation because although our hearts are hardened like stone so often, 
He is broken. He is broken on the cross like the rock of Meribah and Massa so that the waters of grace can come and wash away our hearts of stone and make them hearts of flesh. The waters of life, they flow from his wounded side so that we can be true worshipers in spirit and in truth by receiving the Holy Spirit. And our thirst could truly be quenched. This is what Jesus is saying in John chapter 4. He's talking about the water of the world and the water of grace. Everyone who drinks of this water, he's talking about water of the world, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I am the water of life. Jesus is the water of life. Now let me give you a quick application piece. It's not so much an application as really a probing question. You see, the New Testament describes life as the wilderness. Today, friend, you are in the wilderness. You are in exile. And the Bible is probing us to ask, What water are you drinking? Why is it not quenching the thirst of your heart? Why is it not quenching the deepest desires of your heart? Have you hardened your heart to the living God? Have you blamed the wilderness of your life on God and demanded that justice be done against him in your heart? Have you put him on trial in your heart? You see, Deuteronomy 8 Deuteronomy chapter 8 tells us the wilderness was, in fact, a trial. But it was not a trial for God. It was a trial for Israel. To test the impurities of their heart and to teach them what true worship is. And Psalm 95 applies the same question to us today. To show us how we are improper worshipers so often. Sometimes we worship God externally, but not internally never really bowing the knee to the King of Kings in our hearts, never really bending the knee to King Jesus in our hearts. Psalm 95 implores us to ask, what wilderness are you rejecting? What provisions do you grumble about? What justice are you demanding from the Creator of the universe? What will your defense against the God who breathed the stars into existence and holds everything in His hand What will your defense be against him? That's what the book of Job is about, by the way. The psalm is meant to show us that none of us escape the warning. This is written to God's people. It's written to those of us who call ourselves Christians today to implore our hearts and to probe. Have you hardened your heart even though you perform the religious rites, but your heart really is not with God? But friend, there is good news. Because Jesus Christ stood trial. Jesus Christ stood trial in Exodus 17. And he stood trial once and for all under Pontius Pilate. He's rejected by his own people. Although he was their true shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. They hardened their hearts to him and they put him on on the stand and demanded a verdict against him. They sent him into the wilderness to suffer and to thirst. But Jesus, 
absorbs the judgment that you and I deserve. And he gives us acquittal so that we may drink and be washed in the waters of grace. He gives us himself, the true bread of heaven, the true waters of life. He is the creator who breathed the earth, who breathed the sea into existence. He is the tabernacle. He's God's very presence amongst us. He is the rock of salvation. He is the true Israel who endures the wilderness. He stands trial, not before us, but on our behalf so that we may enter so that we may enter into a better rest than the land of Canaan, but that we may enter into his eternal and his heavenly rest because he drank God's cup of justice. He swallowed God's wrath for us so that we may drink the waters of life. Friends, today, today, if you hear his voice, come and drink. Come and lay down your prosecution against God. Take him off the stand in your heart. Because he went to the stand for you. And gives you his perfect record as if it is your own. Come and receive acquittal. Because he stood on the stand in your place. Come and have the waters of grace, the waters of life where there is no bottom to the deep well, come and look, friend, to the rock of our salvation. Father, the wilderness of life hardens our hearts so often. We go astray in our hearts long before our lives follow. In your gracious patience, turn our hearts to you again. Wash us with the waters of your grace that we may have hearts of flesh, Make us true worshipers in spirit and in truth. Fix our gaze on the rock of salvation, your Son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. It's in his name we ask and pray. Amen.